Welcome to the Alpha Universe Podcast. I'm Christopher Robinson, editor of alphauniverse.com, and in today's show, I'm speaking with National Geographic photographer and filmmaker Bob Christ about creating visual stories in stills and video. In Tech Talk, Sony's LD Nadia explains the process and best practices for pulling a still frame from a 4K video. And we get some do this now tips from Bob Christ for shooting National Geographic caliber travel videos. My first guest is Bob Christ. Like many photographers, Bob got started down this road somewhat by accident. Studying acting in college, he went to Europe with a theater company where he performed at night and wandered the streets of Amsterdam, Paris, Vienna, and other European cities with an old Minolta camera by day. In those early years, his love of using the camera to tell stories was born. After two years in Europe, Bob returned to the U.S. and got a job at a local newspaper, shooting both spot news and feature stories. Winning an award for his work at the paper gave Bob enough credibility to get a meeting with National Geographic's director of photography, Bob Gilka. That meeting would ultimately launch Bob onto a long and successful career working with the Geographic. Amid the upheaval that professional photography in general, and print photojournalism in particular, have gone through, Bob has transformed from a still shooter creating photo essays to a multimedia content creator. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Bob. Pleasure to be here. So you started in in really still photography. Today, you're doing more than just still photography. Yes. I have segued to the point where I'm probably doing about 80% um, video now. And it's a strange... um, it's a strange kind of transformation, but on the one hand, it's entirely logical. And what has happened, in my view, of what's happened with still photography, um, because the printed page is kind of fading and there's and there, more of us are getting everything from screens, screens demand movement and audio uh, more than a, the printed page does. And also, my strong suit as a photographer was never the backshop work. Today, landscape photography, you know, I read these, these um, tutorials about blending luminance channels in Photoshop, and I'm thinking, really? Really? Because I come from an era when we used to edit uh, with a trash can at a light box, and it was either a keeper or it went into the trash. You couldn't go into these channels and do this. So I never really got into the backshop work that much. So I started to see my competition doing these phenomenal Photoshop things and stuff, and I said, okay, what can I do that they can't? And there's two things basically that I learned over the years that still most advanced um, amateurs and a lot of professional, uh, new professionals can't do. They can't shoot people and they don't know how to tell stories. So I thought, okay, what, you know, I love to tell stories. I love to shoot picture stories and everything. And I love to interact with people, photographing portraits or whatever. When video was put into digital cameras, all of a sudden I never had any interest in video. In fact, I had a column once uh, where I said, you know, I'll never get interested in video because video you always need a crew and you can't do anything without a crew that's professional and a still photographer by himself can still do professional work. So I had no interest in video, but the more I played around with it, I saw the possibility of doing like the 21st century version of the picture page feature stories that I used to do 
back in the 70s on the newspaper. And I was good at those picture stories. I'd find, you know, I found an old seaman's mission in, in Hoboken where there were three old sailors living alone. They're in their 80s and it was their last place to live. And they wanted to knock that building down and make a ShopRite parking lot and displace these guys. And I covered their lives. And so I was doing these kind of, those are the kind of picture stories I used to do as a newspaper photographer. And then I started to find funky characters in my travels and people doing unusual things in video. And I started to really fall in love with video storytelling. Now, it was a huge learning curve. If I thought that learning luminance channels in Photoshop was hard, I had no idea how hard it would be until I started editing video, what, you know, what backshop work was. But for some reason, I was more motivated to learn video editing than I was adjusting luminance channels in landscape photos. And so this galvanized me. And it came around as a, at a time when the more opportunities were coming for video shooters than still shooters. And that learning curve you're talking about was really on the technical side because you had kind of the, the chops for telling the story. You knew how to develop a story from developing photo essays in print. I knew, I knew how to recognize a good story. I knew how to recognize an appealing character uh, that you'd build a story around. But I needed to know, there, were, there was a, a few things that you need to know that are different about shooting video than shooting stills, although a lot of it is the same. But the big thing was learning how to edit. And uh, to this day, I'm not a, a great editor, but I can piece together a piece that's pretty good and then uh, I can hire a more experienced editor to put the finishing touches on it or whatever. But the, the editing, learning to edit video was very important to my growth as a video shooter because it's not until you're in the edit suite and you're looking for another close-up for a sequence and you don't have it because you're an old still photographer who only shoots big wide scenes that you really begin to learn, for instance, the importance of shooting close-ups in video, you know. Let's talk a little bit about your process for shooting a video. You said you were today very, very efficient and you do a lot of research before you actually even get to a place. Do you really go to the point where you've storyboarded out the whole video? Do you have the whole thing planned? No, uh, there's, I, don't, I can maybe think of one job I've done where I actually can do a storyboard. What I'll do is uh, I have, there's a couple different video approaches I'll do. Sometimes it's just a general travel log, in, in which case... I'm shooting a lot of landscapes. I maybe try to find somebody who's, uh, who uh, can talk a little about the area and be a narrator. And then I'm always, I'm always on the lookout for interesting characters. So I've been spending, for instance, a lot of time in San Miguel de Allende down in Mexico. And while I was down there shooting all the beautiful architecture and this street parades and stuff, I see this, this man walking down the street who looks like like a psychedelic Santa Claus. He's got a long gray beard. He's dressed in, and it turns out he's a very well-known artist down there. And he was so much fun and so lively. And he invited me out to his studio. I said, this guy's going to make a, a video story, you know, a great, a great character in my story. Then I go out and I'm, I met him and, and I shot a little story about him and told his story. So it's a combination of being open to to um, what's happening around you, but also recognizing somebody who can tell a little story, a, a character who can make a place come alive. So you have some idea going in, this is what I, I know I'm going to see, this is something that I think might make a story, but then as you get there, it's like, now let's let the experience yeah, wash exactly. over. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, 
um, for instance, something that I can plan when I was in San Miguel, I knew that they do a, a Mexican style of rodeo down there called charro. So um, a charreria, I guess it's called. My Spanish is terrible. But uh, so I contacted somebody that had worked with some photographers down there. And I said, can you set me up with, uh, with a, a, a charro? You know, I want to get a charro training and stuff. So then he set me up with this family of charros and I went out and I shot some of them and then they had a big rodeo coming up and I covered that. So that was something I, I knew before I left that I wanted to cover. But meeting Anato McLaughlin, the psychedelic Santa Claus artist, was a complete bit of serendipity that you have to be open to as well. When I'm doing travel videos, that's the combination that I look for. And when I'm doing like feature videos closer to home, stories about interesting people, it's classic storytelling. You look for an interesting character and you go on a journey with him or her, see how they're changed, see how they overcome obstacles, and you show that process. And that's the same good basic storytelling that we've been doing ever since we sat around campfires back in the, the Iron Age telling, you know, stories. So um, it's, it's the Greek myths. It's all that stuff. Peeling character, a hero you know, who's got a, a purpose, a journey, has to overcome a problem or goes through a, a transformation. And then we see the denouement of that. And so in my videos, I look for these kind of characters and I tend to be drawn towards people who work in a traditional way. I, I think I'm feeling as I get older, the encroachment of the modern world. And so I'm very interested in people who are continuing an old world craft into the modern world. And I, you know, I, I, I never went out looking for that theme, but if you, I looked at the first six videos I did and I said, this is all about people who are doing, you know, fixing violins by hand or playing the world's largest organ, uh, you know, pipe organ in, in a department store in Philadelphia. They're unusual people doing unusual things that tend to be more traditional. You mentioned that one of the reasons that you initially shunned video was because of the need for a big crew and you're always traveling out with a bunch of people. Is that something you got over or do you just not work that way or, or how's that? I, I tend to work, you know, because today's gear is so light and everything is digital and efficient. I have found that I can work as a one man band. Ideally I have a second person, but I was never, even in my days of shooting advertising and corporate and reports, you know, where we go out with one or two or three assistants and stuff. I never liked that, that group approach. I always liked to kind of just be on my own. And previous to the, today's small cameras and, and, you know, digital video, it was impossible. You know, you needed a sound guy and you needed a, a couple of grips. The equipment was really big and everything. But today, you can do a very respectable job. I'm not going to say that, that me shooting as a one-man band, I can do it as well as a, a well-trained four-person crew. That's, but I can do it at a professional level that's acceptable to the clients that use my, my stuff. And it makes me very light, mobile, and responsive because, again, I've got 30 years of experience traveling. And, and sometimes the crews that you go with don't have that experience. You know, um, I had a, a crew with me in, in Iceland and, and one of the young guys had trouble. He just had a, like an anxiety attack or something because he was away from home. And I was like, oh man, you know, it all worked out in the end, but you know, I don't have anxiety attacks. I, I can't afford them. 
you know, so, so, so some, you know, he travels furthest who travels alone, you know, uh, I kind of still feel that way about even video work. Although I do like working with a second guy, just one, a two man crew is ideal for me. But being able to, to move light, move fast, have that small crew, just you or you and somebody else, that's a help to, to telling the stories and creating the, the footage? It's a help uh, to be responsive and be quick. And, and if you have to all of a sudden, um, you know, pick up and leave and go someplace else, it's, it's, it's easier than moving an entire crew, you know. Right? I mean, even talking about you can get one hotel room with two beds instead of having to get four hotel rooms or something like that. So you're, you're responsive, you're quick. And, and once you work with them, a second partner, like a second shooter, after a while, I, now I'm working with a guy now who's a fantastic uh, young shooter who my kids used to babysit when he was a kid. And he's a hot young videographer. He's got a great business going and he shoots some of my second camera. Well, he and I are like a well-oiled machine now. You know, when we go in and we cover something, you know, I'll do the wide shots, he'll do the cutaways, and we, we work like a, a pair of dancers, and that's because we've done it, so I love working that way. But, you know, it's taken a lot of practice, the two of us getting to know each other's strengths and weaknesses and what each one is good at and everything, but we work pretty well together. You mentioned that the, the gear today is so light and, and helps you to be nimble. What exactly are you shooting with? Well, these days I shoot with Sony A7 series cameras and the RX series cameras. I basically, I was an early adopter of the Sony RX10, which is not even marketed as a professional camera, except that the video that comes out of it is awesome and the lens is awesome. And it's a, it's a enclosed, you know, 24 to 200 millimeter equivalent lens with great audio. And so I shoot that. That's my run and gun camera, uh, where, you know, if I'm covering a street fair or a parade and I don't know whether I'm going to need a wide angle or a 200 millimeter, you know, here I don't have to change the, the, the lens or whatever. And then these days I've been shooting with the Sony a7R2. And on that camera, I would put an ultra wide angle zoom and some of my faster primes if I need to get that nice bokeh effect uh, because it's a larger chip camera. The Sony RX10 series is a one inch chip camera, which you can still get bokeh effects, but not as easily as you can with an APS-C size chip or a full frame chip. So I've got one of each body and a couple of lenses for the, R, uh, the A7R2. And that's my walk around kit. And it fits in a little shoulder bag. And, you know, I have a monopod and a tripod and I've got all the grip stuff. But for covering things like Day of the Dead in Oaxaca and Mexico and everything, those two cameras, you know, a fast, I have a fast 30 millimeter prime. Um, I have a 16 to 70 F4 zoom for the A7R2, the 10 through 18. And then maybe I have um, one of my old Nikon lenses, my an old Nikon 8517 converted uh, with a lens converter that I use for fast tele work until Sony brings out <laughs> a fast tele for me that's lightweight. <laughs> Lightweight's always good. It's Lightweight is, oh, it's, you know, uh, I, I say the older and heavier I get, the newer and lighter my equipment has to be. So you mentioned that you still shoot sometimes with a, a Nikon lens, and you were a longtime Nikon shooter, um, but you switched over to Sony a few years ago. And yes. you switched over to time when... You know, Sony was was not um, producing the cameras they are today. 
Exactly. Uh, I was an early adopter and it was, it was, I was shooting, uh, one of my first video assignments was to cover this around the world jet trip that National Geographic Expeditions was running. They were trying out these new high-end trips where they'd take a private jet and they'd take people to seven different stops around the world and see the wonders of the world. And they wanted me to document it in video. And the first time I went out with a DSLR, my Nikon, by the time I got the thing trussed up with putting a big LCD loop on the back and all the other kind of stuff, we were back in the bus and going to the next stop. I, I just, the stuff, it just took too long for me to set up and it was a lot, you know, the, the camera bag got so big because those loops were big and the lenses were big. And finally somebody asked for some slow motion. They wanted some slow motion and, and you know, to shoot slow motion, you need a camera that has a higher frame rate. So at that point, Icon didn't have anything that shot above 30 frames per second, but a friend said, why don't you try this little Sony NEX5 and you can adapt it to your Nikon lenses and it shoots 60 frames HD. And I went and I looked at it and it was tiny and I bought it and I bought a little adapter and I ended up shooting most of the time with that camera. So I came back from that trip and I said, whoa, this is a brave new world. And then I I bought a second body and then I said, you know, I don't have to carry these big lenses. I can, I can buy their small lenses and they were So I had de facto, over the course of two years, switched to Sony, but I couldn't actually come out and say it because I had other associations at that point. But I had basically switched systems, not from any dissatisfaction. I, I don't want to knock Nikon. They make great stuff. But for what I needed... The smaller, lighter, more responsive cameras with built-in EVF so I didn't have to put big loops on the camera. For me personally, for my needs, the Sony made so much more sense and the quality was there. And so, you know, I finally, after about two and a half years, had to kind of tell Nikon that I, I love you guys and they're great people, but I, I don't, I'm not using the, the stuff anymore. And... It was a very, very hard decision for me to not to switch because I was the, the gear made it easy, but it was very hard because uh, I had a good long association with Nikon and they're wonderful people and their gear is great too. It's just that the Sony for me was much better. Do you shoot in 4K when you're shooting with the Sonys? Yes, I do now. I, I was um, a reluctant 4K kind of guy, you know. Uh, I said, you know, HD is fine. Why do I need 4K? I'm never really an early adopter. You've known me long enough to know that. Uh, I don't know if it was when we were working together in one of my columns, I said I'd shoot digital when they pry this film camera from my cold, dead hands. You know, so I, I've, never been, um, I've never been an early adopter. And the, the same thing was true with 4K. Until my young friend, my you know, who I partner with sometimes on some of these jobs, he just said, "Look, we got to shoot 4K," and he said it's easier to stabilize. It's the sharpness is unbelievable. You can see it even if you output in HD. You have so much more real estate. You can do moves over, you know. And so, so he was shooting 4K with his system, and so I started shooting it and now I try to shoot it all the time because of those advantages. You can pull stills. You can pull printable stills from 4K, which is very convenient when for somebody like me who, uh, you know, like when I do these, I cover these geographic trips, I make a, um, a video for them, but they also ask for a selection of stills. And sometimes you just can't do both at the same time. 
but you know you can pull publishable stills out of there. So 4K has been another revelation for me. And uh, it's funny, I will output some of the work in 4K, but even if the work is going to be output for HD, I'll still shoot 4K because I notice an increase in sharpness and detail. And because you have so much more real estate, let's say you're doing a handheld shot and you're a little shakier than you should be. You can crop in, the stabilization program can crop in more to a 4K um, image than HD and still get a beautiful image and get a beautiful stabilized image. So there's a lot of things. Also, if you're stuck shooting an interview situation in 4K and you're outputting to HD, you can set up one camera with a semi-wide shot and you can crop in to get like your second camera angle. So if you don't have time or you don't have enough hands to set up a second camera because everybody likes to have a cutaway angle in an interview, in 4K you can just crop in and pull back out. So there's a number of real world reasons why I shoot 4K even if my project is going to be an HD output. I think a lot of that's well understood by professionals like you, but it's not well understood by a lot of people who you know, don't want to shoot 4K because they think, oh, it's going to take up so much more space. I can't output it for proper 4K anywhere. What's the point? You know, it's just so much more difficult to do. But there are some really uh, very clear advantages. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. And and also, and then you're thinking down the line, um, you know, like if you're at my stage, you're not too worried about future-proofing your work because, but you know, but if I was in my 30s or, or my 40s, whatever, you're future-proofing your work by shooting 4K too, because eventually it will everything will be 4K. So there's a number of reasons for the archival quality of it. Professionally, the the stock video houses they all want 4K. Clients, even clients whose work is destined for the web, are asking for 4K. So so there's a there's other compelling reasons to do it too, besides the nice things about being able to do a two-camera interview with one camera pulling printable stills, being able to stabilize much better. You know, these are, these are the things that attract me and uh, the, the most. You mentioned that uh, you've been doing a lot of shooting in San Miguel de Allende and other places. Where are you traveling these days? Well, my travel is, is kind of breaking down into two categories. The work that I'm doing with National Geographic now is mostly for their travel division called Expeditions. And that is, I go along on those trips, they're small exploratory cruise boats with 100 passengers or less, or they're private jets. And I go along as a speaker and a photo instructor. And that's very much a very fast pace. You know, you put into one place for three or four days and then you're, you get on your plane or you get in your boat and you go to the next place. You see a lot, but you don't stay a long time. And I prefer more... Uh, or I, I also enjoy immersing myself in a, um, a location. So what I do for my own travel now is I go to one place and I kind of try to live like a local for a month. So my wife and I just this past February, we went and we found a, a real cheap apartment in a, in a little uh, coastal town in South Portugal. And we planted there for five weeks. And I got to know some of the fishermen and I went out with, and I stayed in one spot for the whole five weeks. I, I did some local sightseeing, but I was really trying to get into the, the rhythms. And so for me, travel now has this two-part thing. I'm either going in a group and I'm going very fast and I'm sightseeing, or I'm going 
with my wife and we're planting and we're trying to become part of the neighborhood. For me, there's advantages to both kinds of travel and I recommend that people do both kinds of travel. I think what's happened today with so many professional photographers needing to run photo tours and photo workshops as part of their business thing, that most people's travel tends to be in groups with other Americans kind of knocking off sites or, you know, special special photos and everything. But I, I always say that, you know, travel, for it to be really authentic, every once in a while you need to be a stranger in a strange land by yourself because that makes you more uh, aware of the surroundings. It makes you... It's, it's a deeper experience and, you, and you're forced to relate more to the people and not your, your buddies on the photo tour, you know, which is fun and it's great and you learn a lot on those things. But, I, you know, when I found myself doing all these quick trips surrounded by other Americans and other, you know, then I said, you know what, I need a counterpoint to that. I need to work the way I used to work in the early days of Geographic where they'd send you someplace for three months and forget about you. You can find links to Bob's website, as well as his Vimeo page, in the show notes at alphauniverse.com. In a few minutes, Bob will be back for our Do This Now segment to give us some of his best tips for creating great travel videos. When I was talking with Bob about why he shoots in 4K now, he mentioned that one of the benefits that convinced him to do it is the ability to pull magazine-quality publishable stills from frames in the 4K video stream. In today's Tech Talk, Sony's LD Nadia explains exactly how to do it. I'm here today with LD Nadia with Sony, and we're talking about uh, 4K. And in particular, I wanted to talk about extracting still frames from, from 4K video. This has been sort of the holy grail in photography for a while. People who want to be able to just shoot video and be able to extract a beautiful still frame from the video stream. With 4K and the resolution you have with 4K, um, it seems like finally it's it's possible, um, but it's not necessarily a, a no-brainer. You can't just extract a file or, or think you're going to shoot video and pull the still frame. Can you speak a little bit to the process? Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of people have that misconception that it's difficult and that, that it is, you know, um, not a no-brainer. It, it's actually pretty easy when it when you come down to down to it. And there's a number of different. Uh, um, software applications that are out there that allow you to do it pretty easily. But essentially, um, you know, 4K, you know, 3840 by 2160. By the way, HD, 1920, 1080, you multiply those two numbers out and you get about 2.3 megapixels, right? And you multiply out 4K, you essentially come out with about 8.8 megapixels. So at its core, the camera is capturing a video stream of 8.8 megapixel uh, files. Each frame is, you know, eight or so megapixels. So if you're shooting at 24p or 30p, you know, it's almost like having, you know, an eight megapixel camera of, you know, five years ago, cameras were eight megapixels that shoots at 30 frames a second. So huge advantage. Um, advantage when shooting um, fashion, beauty, children, you know, you want to capture that perfect moment Put the camera in 4K, facial children or whatever you're shooting, you know, roll some video and then afterwards scroll through your video and then freeze it on the moment that you want and extract that uh, particular frame. 
Well, for a lot of um, a lot of video projects, you're going to want to be shooting at a shutter speed um, that makes your video very smooth, and that may not be the exact best shutter speed for pulling a still frame. Would you agree? That's a very, very good point. So you're absolutely right, and, and in video terminology, they call that the shutter angle, right? So the shutter angle is usually twice whatever your frame rate is um, as a rule of thumb. And then there's some exceptions depending on the look that you're going for. The same way that you can freeze or blur motion in a still image, right? I can freeze every drop in a waterfall. Or I could make the waterfall look like a, you know, white misty flow. Um, the same thing happens in video. You know, you watch some uh, romantic films on TV and they're very smooth and flowy. And then you watch Saving Private Ryan and it's, you know, staccato and it, it, it's very edgy. And um, that really has to do with the shutter speed. So the shutter angle that we refer to, if you're shooting in 24p, you're typically going to be shooting at 1 50th of a second. It's almost double your, um, your, your frame rate, right? So 24 frames a second, um, 1 50th shutter speed, right? So that's how quickly the shutter opens and closes. Same thing as if you're shooting at 1 30th, you probably want to be at, um, sorry, if you're shooting at 30p, you want to be at 1 60th. Uh, but if you're shooting 24p, 1 50th of a second may not freeze the action, right? A little puppy running towards you um, may look great on video at, in 24p because it looks nice and smooth and your eye makes up for all those imperfections. But as soon as you pull out one of those frames, you realize the puppy is running so fast or it's bounding and its ears are flapping. It's like, oh, wait a second, you know, 1 50th is too blurry. Um, so that's something to keep in mind uh, if you're shooting uh, 4K video with a purpose of pulling out a still image. Now remember, in video, you can actually change your shutter uh, speed or your shutter angle. So if your purpose is, is to, I'm going to shoot this video with the express purpose of pulling out a 4K still, then I need to figure out what is the shutter speed that my camera has to be to get the best still that I want, right? So I may be shooting a fashion or beauty shoot and I know that the model's going to be flicking her hair and I want to freeze that in the air. I may be shooting 24p or, or 30p, either one, uh, but I may have a shutter speed of 1 250th. So there's really a difference between shooting video for video's sake or shooting your video as though it's a, a, a a 24 frames per second motor drive of still images. That is correct. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, going into a project knowing that um, that's the best way to do it. Now, what I would advise against is going into a project saying, oh, I'm going to be shooting a fashion video and I intend pulling some stills out of it, so I'm going to shoot everything at 1 250th. Your fashion video is going to look like Saving Private Ryan. Right, so you may not, not, not maybe the best look for a fashion video. Maybe not the best look. So I, I would say set the camera to its primary purpose. If your primary purpose is to you know shoot um, a video, set your camera to shoot video. If your primary purpose is to shoot video in, with the intention of pulling stills, then set it up in terms of what that still is going to be at the end of the day. And Sony makes um, the Catalyst Browse software, which is expressly designed for pulling still frames from the the video stream. Is that correct? Uh, that's one of the functions. Um, Catalyst Browse is essentially uh, software. It's free software that you can download um, for browsing videos, right? So Play Memories does the same thing. So Play Memories Home, which ships with all our products, or you can download Catalyst Browse. Um, those will allow you to you know, view all your uh, videos in one location. The nice thing about Play Memories Home is that you can view stills and video. You can review 
you know, raw JPEG, um, you know, stills as well as AVCHD, XAVCS, MPEG videos all in one place. Whereas Catalyst Browse will allow you to look at all your videos in one place. The nice thing about Catalyst Browse is it's a really simple, you know, you open up a 4K video, you push play, there's a little button at the top saying, you know, pull still out a video and you can literally just take a screenshot of that, you know, 28, uh, 2160 by 38, 40. I'm, I know I'm getting it wrong every time. Um, you can essentially pull out a, you know, your 8 megapixel image out of your 4K video. Um, you can also mark in and mark out a point and pull a DNG file, which is a digital negative file. And that's essentially uh, like pulling a raw version of that um, frame out of video, which is, you know, gives you a lot more uh, latitude to work. So that's really where the benefit of using Catalyst Browse comes in. Thanks very much, Aldine. It's really uh, great to, to clarify that. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you have a question for the Sony team, go to the podcast show notes at alphauniverse.com to see how to contact us. Even if you're working alone when you shoot videos, you can make something really strong when you give yourself options during the shoot. Bob Christ rejoins us now with some do this now tips to make your best videos. So Bob, I wanted to ask you if you had a single piece of advice for people uh, that they can do right now to really make an improvement in their travel video, um, their 4K travel video, what would it be? Well, my, my one takeaway would be shoot every scene three times. Shoot it wide, shoot it medium, and shoot it close up. Um, so a zoom lens is, is really helpful to do this very quickly. But that way you'll have, uh, when you're editing, you'll have a choice and your, your videos will come alive because you won't be all have overalls or, or close-ups. So every time I make a shot, I set up, I, I shoot it three ways, wide, medium, and tight. And your videos will improve 100% just by having that choice. That's a really great tip. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Alpha Universe podcast. Join me next time when my guest will be landscape photographer and global philanthropist, Colby Brown. You can find the show notes for this episode at alphauniverse.com. Subscribe to the Alpha Universe podcast at iTunes or in the podcast app on your smartphone or tablet.